Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In September of 1945, General Douglas MacArthur was one of the most powerful people in the world. Fresh from accepting the September 2nd surrender of the Japanese on behalf of all the Allied powers, he was immediately tasked with running the occupation of Japan which followed. In his autobiography, General MacArthur summed up the challenges of this new job and the power it gave him to restructure a society. He wrote, Because I had been given so much power, I was faced with the most difficult situation of my life. Power is one thing. The problem of how to administer it is another. My professional military knowledge was no longer a major factor. I had to be an economist, a political scientist, an engineer, a manufacturing executive, a teacher, and even a theologian of sorts. I had to rebuild a nation destroyed by war. In hindsight, MacArthur's description of the massive, all-encompassing job he faced can seem like a MacArthur exaggeration. Most scholars today regard the occupation of Japan as the most successful in history, but it didn't have to turn out that way. Japan had been a fierce enemy. Okinawa and Iwo Jima clearly proved that. It was also a nation of military secret societies, making an insurgency in a time of occupation a distinct possibility. History was not on MacArthur's side either. As MacArthur undertook his new duties in September of 1945, he was aware that no occupation in modern history had ever been a success. It was a well-known fact that even commanders like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Wellington, Kitchener, and Pétain had failed when their battlefield duties shifted to civil administrative duties. Clearly, the odds were not in MacArthur's favor, and the task that lay before him was a daunting one. Just a few short weeks into the occupation, however, on September 27, 1945, a single black-and-white photograph taken by a soldier in the U.S. Army Signal Corps would set the occupation on track for success. The photograph captured the first meeting between General MacArthur and Emperor Hirohito of Japan. This month's podcast will examine this meeting and evaluate the effect that it had on the occupation. Assuming the responsibilities of Supreme Commander, General MacArthur was aware that though the war had been won, the peace could still be lost. A student of occupations and insurgencies, in no large part due to his own father's experiences in the Philippine-American insurrection, MacArthur was a believer in Count Camilo Cavour's tenet that once the bayonets come out, you can do everything but sit on them. Thus, the key to winning the peace in Japan would be to prevent an insurgency from starting and to turn the former mortal enemy into an ally. This was an ambitious plan, and whatever action MacArthur took risked alienating either the occupiers or the occupied. There was no guarantee that the Japanese would cooperate or accept the occupation, and he was also faced with allied public opinion that was overwhelmingly in favor of a punitive occupation that would make Japan pay for World War II. One target for revenge in this proposed punitive occupation was Emperor Hirohito. 
Early in the occupation, MacArthur received instructions from the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the authority of the Emperor and the Japanese government was completely subject to him and whatever steps he had to take in order to carry out occupation policy. Revered by the Japanese but condemned as a war criminal by the rest of the world, the question of what to do with Hirohito was laid at MacArthur's feet. According to a Gallup poll conducted six weeks before the war ended, 70% of Americans favored executing or harshly punishing the emperor. Congress and the Joint Chiefs of Staff adopted the stance as well. While MacArthur could see the reason behind this push to hold the emperor accountable, he also firmly believed that the Japanese nation would look to his treatment of the emperor as a kind of litmus test. It would set the tone for the occupation and could either trigger a rebellion or legitimize MacArthur's authority. Thus, against the strong protests of his countrymen, MacArthur began to take steps to protect the emperor. From the very beginning of the occupation, MacArthur planned to implement reforms in occupation policy through the emperor. There were a couple of reasons why he was so determined that this would work. As a young lieutenant visiting Japan in 1905, the devotion of the Japanese to their emperor had made a deep impression on him. While inspecting the second Japanese army under General Yasukata Oku, he witnessed the army struggling with the dreaded tropical disease beriberi. MacArthur later recalled, The surgeon prescribed a prophylactic, put up in a small tin can with the inscription, to prevent beriberi, take one pill three times a day. Soldiers are much the same throughout the world. They took the pill once, spat it out, then dumped the can into the mud. Some bright young officer suggested that the cans be marked. To prevent beriberi, the emperor desires you to take one pill three times a day. The result was instantaneous. Not a pill was wasted, and nothing but death itself could stop the soldiers from taking the medicine. Forty years later, this experience would remain prominent in MacArthur's mind, and it would greatly influence his belief in the emperor's value to the occupation. The actions of the Japanese government in the days after the war also reinforced this belief. The government chose to have the emperor himself make the declaration announcing the end of the war, and then sent high-ranking members of the imperial family to confirm the surrender to Japanese field commanders throughout Asia. As a result, while the surrender was a crushing blow, it was accepted by the vast majority of the Japanese because it was the emperor's will. This demonstration of imperial prestige just reinforced MacArthur's interest in conducting a soft occupation, a non-military occupation in which the occupiers could rule through existing Japanese institutions and accomplish their goals cloaked in the legitimacy of the emperor. MacArthur knew what he wanted to accomplish in the occupation. He was charged with implementing a long laundry list of allied directives that were intended to modernize Japan and bring it back into the community of nations. He was going to punish war criminals, re-democratize Japan, craft a new inclusive constitution, hold free elections, enfranchise women and ethnic minorities, release political prisoners, reform education and farming practices, establish labor movements, encourage a free economy, abolish police oppression, develop a free and responsible press, decentralize political power, and separate religious power from the state. But he was convinced that he could not successfully force these changes. The Japanese had to be partners in this endeavor, and the emperor would be the key to making this happen the facilitator of Japanese cooperation. 
It was a brilliant plan, but there was one problem. MacArthur had not yet had any contact with the Emperor. They were the two most important people in Japan, and they had not even met. Members of MacArthur's staff urged him to summon the Emperor to his general headquarters. It was time, they said, to make a show of power, remind the Japanese again that they were defeated suppliants. MacArthur rejected this advice, arguing that to do so would be to outrage the feelings of the Japanese bull and make a martyr of the Emperor. It was far better, he argued, to have the Emperor voluntarily come to him. In this case, he insisted, the patience of the East rather than the haste of the West would best suit their purposes. He would play a waiting game with Hirohito, gently force the Emperor to request a meeting, which would then place the Emperor, by default, in the position of a subordinate. MacArthur's strategy ultimately worked. Hirohito, waiting, anxious, daily expecting to be summoned by MacArthur, finally could no longer wait, and let it be known that he wished to meet with MacArthur. Foreign Minister Shigeru Yoshida then informed MacArthur's staff that the Emperor wished to meet with MacArthur. Then came a vexing question of image and protocol. The Emperor had made the first overture, but should MacArthur go to the palace? That idea was quickly abandoned. It would put MacArthur in the subordinate position of visiting a sovereign in his seat of power, and that would send the wrong message. No Japanese Emperor had ever called on anyone. The Emperor was a living god on earth to many of his subjects. People came to him, not the other way around. But MacArthur was convinced that in order to establish his unquestioned authority over Japan, the Emperor would have to come to him willingly. But, ever sensitive to the reputation of the man he wished to rule through, MacArthur felt that having the Emperor come to his military headquarters would be needlessly mortifying. Instead, he informed the Emperor that he would receive him in private at his personal residence, the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. The Emperor could be accompanied by an interpreter only. The meeting would last half an hour, and a photograph of the meeting would be taken. The Emperor accepted this offer, and the meeting was arranged. It was an unprecedented, well-publicized event in Japan. The entire nation waited and waited with bated breath for details of the meeting that many believed would chart the course of the next years. On September 27, 1945, the Emperor arrived at MacArthur's residence, promptly at 10 a.m. in a custom Mercedes-Benz. He wore a morning outfit, cutaways in a top hat, and was accompanied by one motorcycle and five cars full of retainers and imperial guards. Only the Emperor's car was allowed to enter the compound, and upon exiting the vehicle, he was met by several of MacArthur's aides, including Colonel Bonner Fellers and Major Fabian Bowers. The officers saluted the Emperor, and he bowed in response and shook their hands. Already nervous about the meeting, and no doubt thinking about what could be taken from him in this meeting, a faint look of alarm registered on the Emperor's face when he turned his top hat over to MacArthur's valet. Members of the Emperor's household staff tried to accompany him into the residence, but the American officers present blocked their way and indicated that only the Emperor and his interpreter should proceed. In the company of his interpreter, the Emperor silently walked forward. Different versions of the first moments of the meeting exist. According to MacArthur, he approached the Emperor murmuring, Your Majesty, and warmly shaking the man's hand, drew him into the embassy. Bonner Fellers would later describe MacArthur emerging to greet the Emperor, exclaiming, You are very, very welcome, sir. 
Fellers later recalled that it was the first time he'd ever heard MacArthur address someone as sir. He noted that the general reached out to shake the emperor's hand, and while doing so, the emperor bowed deeply, so low in fact that his head was lower than their clasped hands. After this greeting, MacArthur escorted the emperor into the living room of the embassy, where he had a U.S. Army photographer waiting. Three photographs were immediately taken of the two men standing together in the room. One of these photographs would become the iconic image of the occupation of Japan. Fully conscious that this was a historic moment, Jean MacArthur, the general's wife, hid with Colonel Roger Egberg, MacArthur's doctor, on a balcony overlooking the room in which the meeting was to take place. Peeking from behind curtains like impish children, as Egberg later wrote, they watched as the two men sat down and talked. According to a prior agreement between MacArthur and Hirohito, there was to be no official record of the conversation. However, unofficial records from Egberg, MacArthur, and a few of Hirohito's aides do exist. There are differences in each account, but they all agree on a few things. MacArthur was genial and anxious to put his visitor at ease, and Hirohito was very nervous. According to MacArthur, he reminded the emperor that he had been received by Hirohito's father as a young man. He then offered the emperor an American cigarette. As he offered a light, he noticed that the emperor's hands were badly shaking. After about 38 minutes, the meeting ended. The emperor and MacArthur exchanged goodbyes, and the Japanese delegation departed. MacArthur later wrote that Emperor Hirohito offered to accept all responsibility for Japan's actions during the war. MacArthur used this story to paint Hirohito as the first gentleman of Japan, a benevolent, innocent, courtly figure whose value to the occupation was immense. Members of the emperor's staff, taking notes from the emperor after the fact, painted a little different picture of the meeting, a picture of MacArthur praising the emperor's virtues and encouraging him to offer his wisdom to the occupation government. Both versions are probably correct. Each side merely highlighted the parts of the meeting that cast them in the best light. It is not hard to imagine Hirohito nervous, and a little awed by the dominating MacArthur, and it is not hard to imagine MacArthur flattering the emperor. Regardless of the discussion, in the days that followed, both sides presented a united front to the press. MacArthur continued to promote his image of the emperor as the first gentleman of Japan, and the emperor's staff made it known that MacArthur had made a tremendous impression on the emperor. The bottom line was that the two men had met and that the emperor supported the occupation. It was one thing for both sides to state agreement. It was an entirely different matter, though, for the Japanese people to see the two men together. In the days after the meeting, one of the photographs of the meeting was plastered across Japan. At a quick glance, it is just a photograph of two men standing together, one taller, one shorter, both serious, one in wrinkled khakis and one in formal dress. But to the Japanese people, it said so much more. It indicated a transfer of power, that MacArthur was now the power in Japan, and that this arrangement had been sanctioned by the emperor himself. The picture also made it clear that MacArthur was not a small, petty man. He had no desire to humiliate the emperor, and he would protect him. Thus, with a single photograph, MacArthur both communicated to the Japanese people his intention to conduct a soft, non-punitive occupation, and at the same time established the legitimacy of the occupation. 
Demonstrating his knack for statesmanship, MacArthur had laid the foundation for a successful occupation. In the years that followed, he was able to conduct a soft occupation, one that ruled through existing Japanese institutions and relied on Japanese cooperation, not on American military force. That is not to say that Japan did not face difficulties. Even as educational, religious, military, economic, and political reforms were thrust upon the nation, a nation in ashes and in the throes of these reforms was forced to rebuild itself. There was no Marshall Plan for Japan, and the United States government did not spend a dime to rebuild the country. No schools, hospitals, or any other public places were built by the United States. The rebuilding was left to the Japanese themselves. MacArthur, ever proud of the Japanese for the stoicism with which they bore their situation, believed that this self-reconstruction ultimately made Japan a strong and stable state, and helped set the stage for it to become a true ally and partner. There is definitely a case to be made that Emperor Hirohito should have been tried as a war criminal. MacArthur knew this, but he deliberately chose to ignore it. A correspondent for Time magazine in Yokohama after the surrender ceremony wrote, The best adjective for MacArthur's attitude towards this peace and the Japanese is Olympian. He is thinking in centuries and populations. This was certainly the case. If the emperor had to be pardoned and protected in order to win the peace after the war, it was a sacrifice MacArthur was willing to make for the greater good. Today, Japan is one of America's greatest allies in Asia, and there is no doubt that the MacArthur-Hirohito meeting laid the foundations for this relationship. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.